You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. If you could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This spring, I I presented some significant insights that I discovered about love at one of our prayer meetings. And then about um, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, at our marriage group for young couples, I presented a slightly expanded version of those insights. And just a few days after that, I asked Josh if I could present the full version Um, of that message to all of you as part of our gospel culture series, and he graciously agreed. When I wrote this message about a month ago, I sent it off to my family, and I said to them that it's hard to evaluate uh, these kind of things, but I said, I I, I have a sense that this might be the most important message I've ever written. Um. It feels like that to me. And therefore, um, I'm hoping over the next 40 minutes or so to clarify to you what exactly love is from a biblical standpoint uh, so that we can know when we are experiencing real love and when, when we are practicing real love in our lives. So let's pray together. So Father, we we come now to talk about something so basic and yet so important, and we need your help. We really need the Holy Spirit's help, Um, and we're asking for that now. We're asking that you will uh, open our minds to, to... understand this is going to be looking at love from an angle that I think most here have probably never thought about. And so I pray for special grace to understand how important this is. And uh, as we see, as it were, as we peer into the heart of God, uh, help us to um, marvel at what you've done for us in Christ in a new way today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, very familiar text, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 7, and then 12 and 13, and we're going to focus on 12 and 13 today in our message, but I want you to have the context in your mind. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7, and then 12 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then notice at the very beginning of verse 8, it says, love never ends. And then from verse 12, and now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I, am, I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three but the greatest of these is love. Most of you, if you've read your Bibles for any length of time, will know that this chapter is the famous love chapter, often uh, read at weddings, though it doesn't really have anything to do with weddings. Certainly the, the content is very useful for married couples. But it's all about uh, a discussion about the spiritual gifts to a local church and the preeminence of love over those those gifts and how it's the love that really brings them all together uh, in the proper way that glorifies God. What I want you to see, though, today is three vital dimensions of love in this wonderful, famous love chapter that are found in the two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. Notice, first of all, that it says that when our salvation is fully realized, we will see God face to face. This, this personal encounter with the living God is further described to us, amazingly, in verse 12, in terms of knowing. Do you see that in verse 12? It says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what does knowing have to do with love? Well, it turns out an enormous amount. Listen to one of the top experts on 1 Corinthians as he confirms to us this close connection between knowing and loving. Anthony Thistleton says the following, only here does any opposition or contrast between knowledge and love vanish away. For here knowing is shaped by being known and love defines this mutuality. So the three aspects of love that I want to talk to you about today and then apply it to a gospel culture application, the three aspects of love that are related to knowing are, number one, we long to be fully known and yet fully loved. We long to be fully known and yet fully loved. Number two, we long to know another fully and always delight in what we discover. And number three, we long to be loved without the possibility of that love ever ending. What every human longs for in love is described in these verses. The first is that we long to be fully known and yet fully loved. In other words, 
We long to be loved as we are in spite of who we are. Uh, to not have the one loving us as, as they get to know us, to not have them withdraw as they discover the, the horror of sin and selfishness and shame that's hidden within us. Think about it, my friends. There's, there's nobody on the planet that loves you this way. When we feel misunderstood or mistreated, when, when we get into conflict with somebody else, when we discover something unsavory about someone, the human tendency is always to withdraw and to create distance between ourselves and them. We do this to others, and others do this to us. To love the way that uh, where, where someone would know us, and, and even though they find horrible things about us would continue to love us. Well, well, that would require nothing less than a, a covering of all of our sin so that the one loving us could, could delight in us without seeing any of the unsavory and horrible, shameful things that exist there. Well, then listen to these life-giving words. The Lord has taken away your punishment. Literally, he's taken away the judgments against you, the judgments of of God himself against you. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, he is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. See, in verse 15 of Zephaniah 3, first of all, God removes our punishment. He covers it. But then, after he removes and covers our sin, what does he do? He delights in us. This is love, my friends. The kind of love that you will not find in any other person on the planet. Only God can cover our sins completely and delight in forgiven sinners extravagantly. And so, oh, there's so much more we can say about this. But let's just limit it to that. Being known by God is the first strand in our redefinition of what true love is. Being fully known and yet fully loved in spite of all the sin and the wrong because the covering over our sin is so extensive. The second category or strand of love is described in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 as well. It says, and then I shall know fully. Number two, we long to know another fully. And always delight in what we discover. We, we not only long to be known fully, but we long to know another fully. And we delight, we, we, we long to delight in the discovery. We want to know another more and more and more. And we want to, as we enter into that, that love relationship of knowing them, we want to delight in what we discover. We don't want to recoil in horror at what we find. We, we, we long as we get to know someone more and more to find secret wonders 
not secret garbage piles as we journey into their heart. We also, though, long to, to have the one loving us to, to give themselves fully to us, to, to, as it were, to open the doors of their heart fully to us without any secrets, without any holding back from us. In other words, this, this longing to know another fully kind of has two elements to it. We, we, we long to delight in what we come to know, and we also uh, long to have the other person delight in showing themselves to us. We want there to be a mutual delight as the lover discloses themselves and the, the beloved uh, delights in what they find. And again, ha- have you ever met anyone like this? And don't we all, to a certain degree, hide from each other? This is what sin has done to us. We don't want to be exposed because we feel shame as Adam did in the garden, and so we hide. But the Lord God said to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. If you think about it, there's there's only two beings in the universe that have no sin, God and the righteous angels. They have nothing to be ashamed of. And of those two, only one is infinite. One is created, the angels. God is infinite so that as we get to know God, as we discover God, as we, as we find out more and more about God throughout eternity, we will find that the joy increases in, 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 in uh, abounding levels. Uh, we will never reach the end of our knowledge of God because he's an infinite being. We will forever know God in increasing measure. Jesus said these amazing words, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Uh, Don Carson, the uh, New Testament scholar and expert, particularly on John, expresses it this way. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. And just in case you think this knowing and loving of God is going to be limited and it's not as exciting as I'm describing it, listen to the words of Jesus on this matter. And these, these, these are the verses that got me thinking along this level. It was really reading Augustine, and reading these verses that started to open up this doorway to me. Listen to what Jesus says. It really is an astounding what he says. These verses are so easy to read over and not realize that what he is saying is absolutely staggering. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. He has full knowledge of us. And my sheep know me. Okay? Just as... The Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I mean, can we have that slide up again, Andrew, of the, of the verse? Doesn't it do that? Okay, well, let me read it to you again so you get it. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as 
Just as. You see, uh, the relationship of the believer with Christ is described as a knowing by Jesus and it is compared to the way the son knows the father and the way the father knows the son. It says just as. I mean, it's a breathtaking knowledge. And he says, and I, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's all, this comes to us through the gospel and through his death on the cross. The giving of his life for us is, results in rather the giving of himself to us. He lets us in so that we can know him fully. Later on in John 17, I've been doing a lot of reading in John 17 these days. This connection between God letting himself be known to us, God letting him, us know who he is and increasingly in an intimate knowledge of him and love being enjoyed and experienced by us is made clear. Listen to this verse. This is another verse that if you think about what it's saying, it's staggering. Jesus says, I have made you known to them. That's us. And I will continue to make you known in order that, what? The love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. That verse is staggering if you think about it. Again, Don Carson makes clear what's going on here. He says the intimacy of the sheep-shepherd relationship is grounded upon the intimacy between the father and the son. You know, I wasn't going to say this because we don't have time, but I decided to insert it anyway. Is I, when all through the years, when people say to me, God loves you, it always just slid off my back. I knew it shouldn't do that. As a pastor, this has been true of me. People would say that to me and it just kind of felt like, eh. It, it just felt like uh, bumper sticker Christianity, you know? Just sticking a bumper sticker on my forehead, Jesus loves you. Um, it's because I didn't understand what I'm telling you right now. I just, there was this, this, this frothy, the, the world has a frothy view of love that's all based on mutual attraction. And attraction is part of love, yes, but it's not the main part of love at all. It's not the way the Bible describes it. And as I started to see this, all of a sudden love had gravitas and depth to it. All of a sudden talking about God loving me mattered to me now on a whole different level. God discloses himself to us in a way that has existed for all eternity between the persons of the Godhead. And the very nature of love is that love is always out, goes out from itself to others. It's always wanting to bless. It's an outward force, love. Love is never inward, it's always outward. And so it doesn't surprise us that God wanted to share this love with yet uncreated beings. He wanted it to spill out. It, it, he was, God was completely satisfied in the Godhead with the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But because love is, moves outward, he wanted, he wanted to create a world where he could share this amazing love with us. This being known by God and knowing God are at the very heart of what love is all about. The third strand that brings these two together 
the, these two kinds of knowing together is found in verse 13 and, and at the very beginning of verse 8. We long to love without the possibility of that love ever ending. We long to love without the possibility of that love ever ending. This is one of the reasons that we find funerals so hard. It seems to prevent this knowing and being known from knowing from continuing. It seems to abruptly stop something that was never intended to stop. Because love longs for permanence. This explains why the hookup culture that we live in of this generation leaves people feeling so empty and restless. They, they hop in and out of bed with each other like it was the same as eating one dessert too many. This is the way of an adulteress, it says. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Lust is by its very nature temporary and only satisfies in the moment. We, we struggle with lust. Probably everyone in this room struggles with lust. Not just sexual lust, there's all kinds of lust. Lust for money, lust for power, lust for all kinds of things. But, but lust is something that, that we all struggle with but lust by its very nature is temporary. And so it says in Hebrews 11, speaking of Moses, he says he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Love by comparison to this is permanent. It never ends. You know, humans are always promising never-ending love to each other, but only God is completely committed and faithful in the way that we all long for. Proverbs says, remember that Proverbs is written from the perspective of a king teaching his son how to be a leader. So it's always written from the man's perspective. But because it's in the canon, you can insert a woman for almost all the places it talks about a man Many a man or woman claims to have unfailing love, but, can a, but a faithful man or woman who can find. Your love is like the morning mist, God says, like the early dew that disappears. I mean, uh, all the things that make love love, wanting to be known, knowing, and having it last, we fail in all points, all of us do. We long for that for our lives, but we all fail at it. Compare this to God, who alone is the one who shows us what love is, who alone fulfills all three components of love perfectly. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. He calls it his unfailing love. That's the kind of love that never ends. Or one of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that doesn't stop, it lasts forever. God's love then is not some band-aid, bumper sticker, candy floss statement with no weight on it. When we talk about God's love, we're talking about eternal veracities and realities. God did not just save us from something 
eternally terrifying. That is his wrath against sin. But he saved us for something, eternally satisfying, his everlasting love. I uh, spoke at this Korean retreat last weekend, had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for releasing me to do that. And, and I had a group of, uh, every, every meal I moved to a different table and met new people. And uh, at one of the meals, I had a group of about uh, eight young men, all single guys, ask, peppering me with questions. And one of the questions they asked me was, um, does, it, does God exist in, in hell? And I said, um, absolutely he does, because God exists everywhere. But in hell, only his wrath will be experienced. Only the, the, God fills the whole universe, but his wrath will only be experienced for all eternity. Um, that's what makes hell, hell. But here's the amazing thing. The counter to that is in heaven and those who know and are loved by God and are covered by, by the, the, the death of his son, they will know God's only his grace and his love and his mercy forever. They will never encounter his wrath against sin. This is why Christ died for us, that we would know God's love. God's love isn't just something that to know God, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbors or self. This matters because this is the grand reality of the universe. So let me conclude this message with a couple of application points that will help us to better develop a, a culture of love in our church. If love is all about knowing and being known, then some of us need to face the fact that our lack of deep involvement with other believers in this church is nothing less than a lack of love in our lives. If you are a person whose only connection with the people of this church is on Sundays, if you think church is primarily an event that you attend where people sing and there's a message, then you're missing out on the main part of church. That's a, a big part of church, but that's not the main part. Church is not just about attendance. It's about building relationships of love that help each other become more and more like Christ. That's why we call each other's brothers and sisters and we talk, talk about the family of God. Now, one way we try to facilitate this in our church is in our small groups. We try to get into each other's lives, knowing each other and allowing ourselves to be known, recognizing that we're not doing it the way that God does it for us. Uh, he's, the, he's the song on the other side of the canyon and what we're doing is the echo. Okay, a faint echo of God's way of loving, but we are doing it nonetheless. Our culture of love in this church will grow when each person in our church has stopped hiding from others because of hidden sin and shame they feel. They don't want to be discovered and they, they don't want to experience rejection. You know that on a human level, we are all hiders. And on a human level, we, we reject other people when we find shameful and sinful things lurking in their hearts. 
But those of us who have come to know Christ have all experienced something better from God. God has covered our shame and our sin with Christ and loves us extravagantly. And because he has done that to us, we are free to pass that kind of love on to others. And so verses like 1 John 4, 19, we love each other because he loved us first. He's real. Because of the gospel and its wonderful sin covering wonder, we can know others and be known by them without hiding or withdrawing from sin. The the cross is adequate to cover it all. And because of the cross, it allows us to really get to know each other. Knowing that there's gonna be lots of sin we find, but the cross is adequate to cover their sin. And I can let people in and, and, and really get to know me, recognizing they're gonna find lots of sin, but the cross is adequate to cover my sin too. And because of the covering of the cross, we can actually practice this with one another. And so the first application is simply this. Prioritize time for small group participation in your life. Prioritize time for small group participation in your life, even though you are busy and even though you are tired. Everybody is always busy. And most of us are always tired. And so if you're gonna wait until you're not tired or you're not busy, it's never gonna happen. To, to, to attend church, but not to get involved in the relationships of the church is like making a pie, but never putting it in the oven. It kind of misses the point. It's like dating, but never getting married. It, it, we have to make a commitment to grow in love. This is, it's, this is not, my friends, uh, deciding to do this is not about a preference. It's not about how much time we have. It's whether we're committed to love or not. That's what we're talking about. Are we committed to love or not? Because at the end of the day, the church is about growing in love for God and each other. Number two, personalize, don't theorize the truth. Those, that's, this is a, an application point for those who are already committed to small groups and perhaps prayer meeting. And by the way, I think prayer meeting is one of the best ways to grow in love. There's nothing like praying together to bind people's hearts together. Many people have that testimony. But when we talk about truth together, we can't afford to talk about truth abstractly and theoretically because that's just another form of hiding. We're not letting ourselves be known and we're not letting the scripture address our hearts. Let me tell you, I... I encourage you to practice confession. Wow, that's a hard one. That's something that the, that the Roman Catholic Church got so right. And we in the Protestant world got so wrong. That there's, a, there's something to be said about confessing your sins to other people. Because how will people know what, what's going on in our life really if we never do that? How can they possibly encourage us and correct us and speak into our life if we're always putting up a big smiley face at church. 
Last weekend, when I was up at this retreat, I met a remarkable man. He wasn't Korean, but he attended all the, all of my meet, all the meetings there. He was raised in a Christian home by, uh, I won't tell you his name, but he was raised by a very famous man who wrote many books, Christian books. But when he was 14 years old, he left home and became a nomad and basically a homeless man, but didn't, wasn't a homeless man that just kind of begged on the streets, but traveled all across, across Canada as a homeless man. His story is, is unbelievable. And during that time, he became a, an alcoholic. And he was an alcoholic for 40 excruciating years, 40 years as an alcoholic. Most alcoholics don't even last that long. But about five years ago, a Christian family took him into their home and started loving him extravagantly. And today he's largely living in freedom. I found him to be a fascinating man to talk to. I've always been especially interested in the whole area of addiction um, because I think I have an addictive personality, so I'm like that myself. Um, but I think that addiction is, has clues into all kinds of areas. And, and addiction also is a category that very much describes how sin acts in our lives. So I asked him, I had a good long talk with him after the final session, and I asked him why alcoholics feel so much more comfortable in AA meetings than they do in churches. And his answer was very sobering. He said the following, and he said it with such kindness and such love. And he I've tried to sum up basically what he said without adding to him his, what he said, because I think this is pretty much what he said to me. He said, every alcoholic knows that he can attend any AA meeting in the world, and everyone else in attendance is or has been an alcoholic. And because of this, there is a true knowing of the struggle, and therefore a love and acceptance of the alcoholic. Then he goes on, went on to say, the church is full of sinners and they should be the same with sinners who come in among them. They each know the struggle of sin and what it's like to be defeated by sin as well as how God forgives and how he helps them to fight sin. But I suspect, he said, most Christians have forgotten that they are sinners and don't like to be reminded about the fact at all. And if they forget they are sinners, they will have a hard time welcoming and loving sinners who come in among them. Well, friends, one of the reasons that we gather in small groups in our church is as a way to help us not forget that we are nothing but rescued sinners. I wonder if you have forgotten who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you love us so extravagantly. And the fact that you can rejoice over us and actually sing over us, that tells me how amazing the covering of sin is. You don't see any of the sin. The death of Christ was so extensive that he completely dealt with all the things that we're ashamed of and all the sin and all the brokenness, and all the rebellion, 
all of it has been swallowed up completely in this amazing event that took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. So I, I pray, Father, please help us to help some of this message to stick with us and help us to realize today that love is mostly about being known by God and the invitation for us to know God and to have that love never end and that all the loving that we do with one another is just a small echo, a small light glimmer um, of that love. So we just commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. We ask for the Holy Spirit's help in all of these things. Amen.